Well, good morning. Good to be with you, and thank you for that sweet reminder musically of it's all about Jesus, is it not? And it's Him that we are here to worship. It is a personal blessing and encouragement for me to be with you again. Um, as has been mentioned by John, I had the privilege many years ago of, of seeing what God was bringing together in a place called Christ the King Presbyterian Church. Many of you I do know, many of you I don't. It's a personal blessing for me and I'm not walking down sentimental lane trying to just the good old days, but I'm also saying to you as a follower of Christ, it's a great encouragement for me to see what Jesus has done, is continuing to do in and through you. I love being around people who are seeking to know Christ and to make him known and to have a part of that in your life. What a blessing, what an encouragement it has been to me and continues to be. So thank you for that. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to, uh, to the letter of Colossae, the book of Colossians, uh, the church in Colossae. And that can be found on page 983 in your pew Bibles or turn the bulletin and look at that. Um, we wanna look at that in a moment, but I wanna just highlight again the fact that this letter that we're about to look at, and again, just a few verses opening that I think are critical to the tone, not only of the content of the letter, but of Paul's heart and life, what he wants for you and I as believers to be aware of. This letter Paul wrote to the church in Colossae really was a personal letter because he wrote it from prison. Many of you know that, but he was in prison at the time of writing this letter. This was one of several what's known as the prison epistles. Ephesians, Philippians, Philemon. Paul was sitting in a jail cell, restricted. And all he could do was write to people that he had known, Christians that he wanted to encourage. These are personal letters. He was hindered from being with them but he was permitted by the government to still have visitors and send out notices and letters to people he wanted them to be aware of. I think we lose the beautiful privilege of that personal letter here. There, there's something, isn't it, really special about receiving a personal letter from someone. Someone who took the time to write, to think about you, wrote for you. That's a precious thing, especially if you know that there are constraining situations from that person who is writing to you. I still, my, both my parents have passed away, but I still have under my bed in a, in a Tupperware container over 200 letters my father wrote to my mother during World War II. He was in the infantry in the Philippine Islands. The Pacific Front had more, more loss of lives than any other front. He was in the army. He was married less than a year when he was drafted. He started writing to my mother. Again, I don't think we appreciate that. We have phones, don't we? I can text you and get a response right away. I can FaceTime you. I can see you. My mom and dad had nothing like that. My dad would write literally while he's in a foxhole with death all around, writing to his wife, my love, I'm here for you. 
This is what's carrying me through. Can I tell you what I'm thinking and feeling about you? I, I love to read those letters and to reread them. Why? Because they're precious. It gives me a picture of my father and his relationship, his love for my mother and his fear that he might not see her again. What was it like for dad to write to mom? So you can understand why they're so precious to me. But I fear that we've lost sight of, of the preciousness of personal letters that are given to you and me. Because they're reading, they're worth reading more than once. That's what the Bible should be increasingly to you and me, a precious letter. So let's read this first section, Colossians 1, 1 through 8. With that in mind, this is the apostle, your older brother in Christ, writing to you. Hear now the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras as our fellow beloved servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Again, much to consider here in this brief section, but um, if you get nothing less, it's simply this. I want you to be reminded again of what we often pay lip service. This letter, like the very word of God, it's a personal letter worth reading time and time again. Can you imagine what these believers were thinking when someone said, we got a letter from Paul. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter for us. This personal letter from Paul was written, it's considered around 61 AD from his prison, uh, in response to what he heard from Epaphras. It was written to a small fledgling group of believers who, who mostly consisted of Gentiles. There were several thousand Jewish, Jews living in the city, but this church was primarily non-Jews. And again, putting it in context, the city of Colossae was about 100 miles east of Ephesus, another place that Paul planted a church. That was in the region of Asia Minor, and though it was a small city, it had a cosmopolitan makeup, all kinds of things happening there. There was a significant diversity of culture and of religion. And, and most biblical scholars believe Paul never visited Colossae, but he, he indirectly planted that church through the fellow servant Epaphras, 
It's also believed that Epaphras was converted under Paul's ministry in Ephesus. And thus he went there on behalf of Paul. So this church and these people, they had a special place in the heart of the Apostle Paul. Because of his connection. But we'll also see he was excited to connect with them because of their love for Christ and how their lives showed it. Something was stirring Paul's heart because of what he heard. I think one of the underlying purposes, and if you're familiar with this book of Colossians, one of the underlying purposes for Paul writing in this personal letter was both to encourage them, but to also address some false teaching that had been subversively creeping into the church itself. And that teaching was a subtle and a persistent undermining of the person and work of Jesus. Was he really everything he said? Is he really the fullness of God? And Paul was writing because he was very concerned about these young believers not taking their eyes off the full person of Jesus Christ. Friends, the Christian faith, and you know this, but let me remind you again, the Christian faith is ultimately and bottom line, so to speak, about Jesus Christ and him alone. That's what got Paul in trouble. That's what put him in prison. That's what eventually would kill him. And he would gladly die for that. And, and this was a theme that he wrote to every leader, every believer he could encourage, and especially those leading other churches like Timothy. Listen to what he said to Timothy. Timothy, there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our lives have to be about Jesus and him alone. That's the common connection Paul had with all believers, and especially here in Colossae. So for the purpose of focus and time, I want to look at these brief verses to lay a foundation about the book that I think will help set the tone and the hunger of learning everything Paul has for us. Before he deals specifically, and he does later on very clearly, with the issues of biblical doctrine and false teaching, I want you to see that he spends much of his time affirming and encouraging fellow believers. Please don't gloss over that. What do you need most today? I would argue, yes, you need clarity in teaching but do you ever get weary and feel alone? <laughs> do you not need somebody to encourage you, to remind you, let's keep our eyes on Jesus even when we're having trouble seeing. There's great power in encouragement. But once again, like so many of his letters, he begins by reminding these followers, these fellow believers, before he does anything else, he reminds them of who he is and why he lives. Think about it. He is not laying out a resume and trying to convince them to listen to him. Like, hey, here's who I am and this is why you should pay attention. He doesn't lay out some big accomplishment. This is who I am. What he is actually stating here 
is an unashamed dependence. I am a man unashamed to tell you I am fully dependent. I am not independent. I am fully dependent. It's about his identity, isn't it? He is first and foremost identified with Christ. Look again, even at that opening phrase, my friends. What does he say? This is a letter written, I am Paul. I am an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. I think it's important for us to pause at times and just ask the question to one another, uh, who are you? And before you respond, well, I work here, I have this, and no, no, who are you? I don't think Paul is being a fanatic. First and foremost, I've been saved by Jesus Christ. He is my life, and it's not by my will, but by God. God came after me. God opened my eyes. That's who he is. And Paul would make sure that everyone, every time he spent any time with anyone, they would quickly understand his true identity. He wanted people to know he wasn't here to serve a cause or a movement or make great things happen culturally. I am primarily here for Christ's sake. I don't think it's any more clearly stated about Paul and how he saw himself than what we see in his letter to the, to the church uh, that he wrote in Galatians. Galatians 2.20, a very familiar verse. If you don't know it, you should memorize it. I'm not going to tell you what to do. Yes, I am. Memorize 2.20 of Galatians. It's almost like someone said, Paul, who are you? And he doesn't pull out a resume, does he? He doesn't say, Here's, can I tell you what I've done and how cool that is and what I'm looking for? This is who I am. I've been crucified with Christ. I don't live anymore. Christ lives in me. And the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Friends, that's either a cute little platitude or there's something profoundly true about that. Paul is saying, I can't, I can't serve a martyr. I can, I'm not here to do anything. I can't even have a thought without the living Jesus. He is in me. I have no life, so please don't think I am someone else apart from Christ in me. If you can't see Christ in me in some way, that I have failed in some way because I am that united in him. Oh, my fellow Christians, we can go on in any teaching or living our lives as Christians, but we can't go on unless we are absolutely clearly understanding the critical necessity of having that understanding. You're, as a professing Christian, your union with Jesus Christ is not a concept. It's a reality. The Spirit of Almighty God lives in everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ. So the danger of turning the Christian faith into a wonderful movement is always before us, finding too much of our identity in our performance rather than in our Savior. And I think Paul is wanting these believers to be encouraged in that. The more 
I think the more we are established in that identity, I think we will reflect it in the same way Paul does. He now spends the rest of this passage, I think, sweetly and clearly encouraging believers in their identity with Jesus. He does it in several ways, but let me just highlight two things that I think Paul alludes to and clearly reminds them of to encourage them. And one is to remind them of who they really are. He gives these followers of Jesus two adjectives. Did you catch that in verse 2? You are saints. You are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, think about it. The Apostle Paul, the great father of the faith, the great leader, doesn't see these believers as helpful servants to make his work successful. Successful. He sees them primarily as fellow Christians who are holy and on a pilgrimage together. We're in this together. I need you as much as you need me. What a sweet reminder. Paul sees them righteous, pure, and clean because of Christ. But left to ourselves, friends, left to ourselves, you and I can easily get discouraged and think those titles, saints and, and fellow wonderful believers, faithful, we can find ourselves weary and saying that just doesn't apply to me. We, we quickly feel alone and even unworthy of our calling because of our own failures that we focus on. I remember as a, a young believer, I was serving in a ministry with high school students called Youth for Christ, where you go out and talk to kids about Jesus and try to help them come to know Christ and to grow in him. And in my youthful enthusiasm, I was going to be a great conqueror and really make things wonderful and, and be so successful. After about a year or two, I found myself really discouraged. I'm not as successful as these other people. And therefore, I assumed that I was not a good servant of God and that I was a mess and I couldn't really be anything that I was supposed to be. Until a an older staff guy pulled me aside and didn't call me by my first name. He said, McFarland, here's your problem. <laughs> McFarland, God has not called you primarily to be successful. He's called you to be faithful. You be faithful and stop worrying about the numbers. Stop worrying about your success. You be faithful to him and watch what he does. Now, it didn't change my life when I was suddenly successful, but it matured me by a brother taking time to encourage my soul to keep my eyes on Jesus and not to turn him into something else. The second thing I think Paul does in a similar way, uh, what's equally important, he not only encourages them in their identity, but he encourages them specifically, clearly, Again, I remember a recent seminary online student speaking to me about her relationship with her pastor and they were talking about church and preaching and encouraging someone. And his encouragement to her was it's important to be specific because he said this, he said oftentimes when he preaches, he says the people will respond to his sermon coming up to him and say simply, that was a great sermon. Thank you very much. That was really helpful. And he found himself thinking, I appreciate that, but 
what exactly, how did God specifically use that in your life? That would be an encouragement to me to know how specifically that was a blessing for you. Well, I think Paul is doing that. Paul is specifically in verses 3 and 4, for example. When he says to them, I am so encouraged because you need to know that Timothy prayed for you with thanksgiving. And in particular, I'm encouraged by hearing of your faith in Jesus and your love for one another. Friends, don't take that for granted. We often pay lip service to those kind of token descriptions. But Paul is saying, hey, I hear that you really are seeking Jesus. And he tells me you actually are loving, sacrificially, carefully for one another. Paul's heart was stirred and moved as he heard the good news of what Jesus was doing in the lives of these believers. I think the way they were daily living, it really was a confirmation of what had taken place in their hearts. I, I think personally, as I look back in my life as a believer, I don't think there's any greater joy than to hear and see God's children walking in truth and proving that by how they love one another. When I see Christians righteously struggling to keep their eyes on Jesus, not performing perfection, but saying, I want to know Christ better. And I want to bring my brothers and sisters along and that I need them. That's a rich encouragement. That's a fruit of that spirit. But you see how Paul continues this opening section of encouragement by expanding it further. He does it by reminding them in verses 5 and 6, of the foundation and the effect of the gospel. That good news or truth of the gospel, that Jesus the Savior has come, has lived, died for them, rose again, and even now is praying for them. He is reminding them of what happened to them. And it really doesn't make sense unless you see again in verse 5 what Paul is addressing. You have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. In other words, he's saying we share a common work of the spirit of God. You've been touched by the spirit of almighty God. Your heart has been changed. He has shown you your need for his love. You have trusted in Jesus Paul knew that the essence of the Christian faith, we walk by, by sight, don't we? Not by faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. What did I just say? Scratch that from the whatever. We walk by faith and not by sight. What does that mean? That means we can't see only until God opens our eyes. We believe in a Savior we can't see. We believe in a Savior who is risen reigns above, coming again. Sounds a lot like the Apostles' Creed. What do we believe? And the only reason we believe that is because of the supernatural work of the Spirit of God. So our common connection is not Christ the King, Presbyterian Church, although I love that. I love what I've seen. Our common connection is the Spirit of Jesus. 
has touched our hearts and lives, opened our eyes to see him and to trust him and to want more of him and to do that together. But look again at how Paul wants them to see an even fuller identity. These believers, along with he and Timothy, are part of a worldwide work of the Church of Christ. As he reminds them in verse 6, this good news has not only come to them, but it's having an impact around the world. It's a beautiful fruit that's coming out of this. People are being converted to Jesus, living faithfully and loving one another in his name. The grace of God is clear. You know, it's all too easy, isn't it, in our day and age, and it's even understandable where we're looking at right now, to believe that you and I are losing the battle with the gospel, right? You look around and say, wow, it's collapsing. It's not working. Where is God? Just look at the erosion of our country and even the American church, I would confess. Almost every week, even in the Church of Christ, you hear about some leader having problems or, or a church that has fallen apart or divided over politics and life and issues that are so secondary. And then you look even closer at the statistics within the Church of Christ about divorce and broken relationships and young people saying goodbye to the faith. I don't need this anymore. That's not encouraging, is it? To hear how bleak, and we need to not deny that. But Paul reminds us that the church is headed and led by the risen King Lord Jesus Christ, who is alive and well. And if you want a, an illustration of that, brothers and sisters, look no further than the church in China continues to rapidly grow under intense, increasing persecution. God is at work around the world. That's very encouraging. But don't lose sight of the fact that at the end of this passage, we see Paul practicing what he preaches. He was personally, I believe, personally affected by the personal news he received from Epaphras. He says this, he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Again, Paul, please don't make him just this doctrinal shotgun guy who's out to blast anybody who doesn't agree with him. Man had a tender heart and he loved. Look at Philippians. He said, God himself knows I yearn for you. I miss you. With the same affection of Jesus, Paul was deeply affected by brothers and sisters. So you can almost see him in that jail cell hearing again and again about what God was doing. And you can almost see him, give me that parchment. Something else is coming to my head. I want to write this down. The Spirit of God was working in Paul in that encouragement time to write a personal letter to the brothers and sisters of Colossae because he loved them, because they loved Jesus. As I mentioned at the beginning, this book 
we call the Bible. It really should be seen as a personal letter from God to you and me. God took the time from all eternity to, to mysteriously and beautifully watch over a written revelation of himself, his redemption, his love for us in Christ. It's his personal letter. Some of these letters are more uh, prone to be read more consistently like these as that I'm suggesting. And they should be read often. And the purpose is to become more and more aware of who our God is and what he has done for us in Christ. You know, God, God wants to really get personal with you and me. He really loves you and me. He wants us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. He will never, in one sense, God will never be satisfied with a general or conceptual knowledge of his son. He wants us to have a living knowledge through his living presence. And that's why not only here at Christ the King, but every professing Christian church, we need to be a church where the people of God who are so alive with his personal love that they are naturally and actually encouraging one another regularly. Encouragement is not, is not some peripheral thing that, or fringe benefit that comes, but it's actually a work of Christ in your life. And so this is kind of a litmus test for us as well, isn't it? If you continue to say, I know the love of God in Christ Jesus, but you live as though you don't really need anybody <laughs> and you don't want to encourage and bear one another's burdens legitimately, then you got to wonder, do I really know him as well as I should? Because it should have an impact on how I deal with one another. As one author describes it and defines encouragement, he says to encourage someone is to give them courage. When someone comes alongside of you and steps with you, you find yourself saying, I think I want to go out on that limb a little further. I think I want to trust my God even more. Thank you. Thank you. Friends, the Christian faith is the most personal of all faiths. It touches and changes your heart and life daily. It was never designed to be lived alone. And I would argue, biblically, you and I need daily encouragement. The writer of Hebrews, I think, writes one of the most uh, important instructions and observations of this, but one of the most unsettling. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, listen to what the writer is writing to Christians. He says this, Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Is that encouraging? No. <laughs> it's a little scary that I might in some way not hear as well as I should what Jesus personally is wanting me to hear. And the only solution that the writer gives is in the next phrase. But encourage each other daily. Paul couldn't get enough of encouragement himself and couldn't give it enough because great power comes out of that. So in other words, let's remind each other who Jesus is and who we are in him. 
And may we be a people of the word of God who live out the word of God personally as we point others to Jesus Christ. And may Jesus Christ be praised. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that you have not left us alone. That you have come by way of your spirit to bring encouragement to our souls in the midst of a broken and dark world. And yes, even our own battle with sin. You have guaranteed that we will never be alone. So God, make us a people who need to be reminded again and again sweetly of the love of Jesus and follow after him. And Lord, I pray specifically for Christ the King Church that you would continue to work the work of Jesus in them and through them, that others would see Christ as well as hear of Christ. And we pray in his precious and holy name. Amen.